Hi, I'm John Bartlett from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and I'm here at the annual Infectious Disease Society of America meeting uh, for 2011. Uh, we're in Boston, and I'm joined here by Dr. Alex uh, Callen from the CDC. Dr. Callen works in the uh, hospital infection control section of the CDC, and obviously his work is very important in terms of what we're discussing today uh, with regard to resistant gram-negative uh, bacilli and the infections they cause. So thank you for joining me here today, um, Alex. I have a number of questions that um, I need your help with. Uh, some of this has been presented at the meeting, uh, and I think we need to get very updated information. But to get started, uh, let me, uh, let me uh, ask you this question. Every doctor in the United States that works in a hospital, and many that work in outpatients, are encountering more and more resistance among gram-negative bacilli, especially, as well as Staph aureus, but uh, we're going to talk about gram-negative bacilli. Why is there uh, a great surge um, in the United States, in Europe, and around much of the world um, in this problem, which we've not really encountered since penicillin was discovered. We'd always had something. Now we don't have much. Why? Well, I think that's a great question, John. I mean, the main issue today, in the United States anyway, I think is with the emergence of very highly resistant Enterobacteriaceae, things like E. coli and Klebsiella, that are resistant to kind of our last stage antibiotics called carbapenems. These carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae were very uncommon in the United States before about 2000. Since that time, we've seen the emergence of a specific en enzyme, a carbapenemase, called Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase, or KPC, that has spread widely throughout the United States. This enzyme basically renders all beta-lactams, penicillins, and cephalosporins ineffective, but also is associated with other uh, mutations that render it resistant to many other antibiotics as well. And I think this has really driven uh, an epidemic, really, of, of highly resistant gram-negatives throughout much of the United States. So some have said um, prophetically that we may be seeing or witnessing the end of beta-lactam class of antibiotics. I mean, that's really scary to a lot of us. I think that's probably a bit histrionic, but nevertheless, I mean, I think what you're saying is really scary. What's driving that? Well, I think there's probably a number of reasons. The two things that I think come to the forefront for, for me is the fact that the resistance, this KPC, as well as some other carbapenemases like the New Delhi metallobetalactamase, are contained on plasmids, which are very highly mobile and are, easy to, are very easily spread from one bacteria to the next. The second, I think, has kind of been going on for a long time, but the, the, the movement of patients from acute care, where we have very active infection control problems, to long-term care very early in their stays frequently, has led to a situation where we see transmission of these organisms in settings where infection control practices potentially aren't as great in long-term care and long-term acute care. These patients are very highly mobile and actually go back and forth between the hospital and long-term care frequently and I think present the opportunity to provide transmission of these organisms between, pe between patients. Okay, so let me ask you this question. I'm a, for example, pretend, I'm a primary care physician and I'm taking care of a patient who's now transferred from a long-term care facility uh, to my hospital and I discover that there is a Klebsiella urinary tract infection uh, which is resistant to uh, carbapenems, for example, maybe penem, meripenem, the whole class. 
What's the rest of the, uh, the sensitivity profile likely to be on that organism? Right, so these are very highly resistant generally, especially the KPC containing or producing uh, species. Frequently they will be susceptible to things like the polymyxin antibiotics, which have, are coming back into favor now. They had, haven't been used for quite some time. Things like colistin and polymyxin. The other antibiotics sometimes that will be susceptible is tigacycline, which is a newer uh, antibiotic. And then, of course, uh, aminoglycosides sometimes will be effective as well, depending on the organism in the setting. So you'd be guided by the sensitivity profile, right. and you may be uh, forced to use drugs that you probably, many doctors, have never used, actually. Right. Uh, colistin is a drug that I think was approved by the FDA in 1965. It dropped out of practice because it was neurotoxic and nephrotoxic. Uh, we don't have very much information about it, and yet we're more and more likely to use it now. Um, I think when I looked at the Hopkins data the last time, we had given it to over 100 patients mm -hmm. um, in the last year. Uh, so that's becoming sort of a staple now for these resistant. How do we prevent these infections? Right, I think that's a huge issue. Um, as many people know, the, the timeline for new antibiotics to treat these, these resistant organisms is probably a long one, you know, five or 10 years before we have effective antibiotics. So I think it's critical to work to try and prevent the transmission of these organisms. I think the lessons that we've learned at CDC as far as this is concerned is people really need to recognize this is an important pathogen. Time and again, we're asked to do investigations in settings where they, the opportunity to intervene early on these was missed due to a lack of uh, recognition. Once these are recognized, the institution of contact precautions, uh, hand hygiene are critically important. And I think the other pieces of that include things like uh, uh, minimizing device use. You know, these organisms are very difficult to treat in the urinary tract when there's a catheter present. And also uh, antibiotic stewardship, you know, to prevent additional resistance uh, down the road. There's also some recent and interesting data from Israel which suggests that potentially the use of cohorting patients and, sta and particularly staff to take care of them may be of some use as well. Yeah, I was really interested in that report uh, from Israel. You might elaborate on that a little bit. As I understand it, there was an outbreak of KPC producing bacteria in multiple hospitals, and they took all of them and put them in a facility with a consistent health care uh, provider uh, that managed it and actually had an enormous accomplishment. That's something that would um, not be easily done in this country. Right. I think, you know, they had a very aggressive uh, national effort to control CRE, which the first part of it's been published, which, as you said, involved uh, aggressively identifying and reporting these cases and, and putting them in contact precautions, cohorting patients and staff and saw dramatic reductions in their case. And their efforts continue uh, on. And we anxiously await more, of the, more information from them on, on their uh, efforts and the results. It more or less became, a, a, to me, a sort of a poster child for what you do. In other words, the, the curve went way up, hit a peak, and then it came right down as soon as you implemented that cohorting um, and in, in tight, tight infection control by people who were well-trained in it. Right. And I think we've seen that, too, in investigations that we've done. And I think when you cohort the patients and the staff, you decrease the likelihood of transmitting it based on, you know, we know people aren't 100% with contact precautions and hot hand hygiene, you decrease the risk of transmitting that to the patients that aren't uh, 
colonizer infected. So for the people that are taking care of patients um, that are transferred from other institutions, when should they specifically worry about this at the get-go? Because you said time is important. Right. I think, uh, again, the, one of the maybe the nice things about this is that the, the spread of these organisms seems to be relatively heterogeneous across the United States with it common in some places and non-common in others. So I think you know, it's important that people look back, recognize how much they've had uh, over the last six to 12 months of these organisms. And if they don't have, haven't recognized these cases, when these cases are admitted, be very aggressive about, con- about contact precautions and consider- even considering surveillance cultures of epidemiologic link contacts as you would for the outbreak of any multidrug resistant organism. So the sort of the epidemiologic pattern of your institution or the referring institution okay may be critical in sort of knowing when to jump early right. in I, this. I think that's a great point. MDROs are rarely a insti- single institution problem, and understanding the regional pattern of these organisms is critically important. And the other thing that you said, which probably needs to be emphasized, is any foreign body uh, that is infected needs to come out. And you said a urinary catheter, but that applies to central lines. It, mm-hmm. apply, it, it applies to a whole bunch of devices because we're prone to put in metal all over, metal and plastic all over the place on on these patients but those I, I think by and large those become incredibly refractory in fact almost impossible right. unless you get rid of the foreign body so you can pour all the antibiotics you want um, and still have the problem um, so if 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 you have an epidemic Um, in your intensive care unit or in your hospital ward with a lot of these. uh, Say it's a KPC-producing organism, and you've got a lot of them. I know you call infection control, but what are the key facets of that infection control program? Right, and I think, again, it's mainly trying to limit identifying cases in an outbreak setting and limiting transmission. And identifying cases can be done through screening of contacts, usually with rectal, perirectal, or stool cultures. Once those people are identified, trying to um, contain them either uh, through contact precautions and um, uh, cohorting staff and patients. And then, of course, as I said before, the use of hand hygiene and uh, device minimization are, are also important parts of that. And then, of course, very important to follow that up to make sure that you're having success with your first round of interventions. Now, you said something interesting to me. Um, I, I think most of the people are aware of hand hygiene and contact precautions and so forth. Not necessarily good at it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> nevertheless aware of it. Okay. Well, you said that may not be quite so obvious uh, is the rectal culture. Uh, and it, tell me when you should do that and why, what specifically you should ask the lab to tell you. Right, so what you're basically looking for is for Enterobacteraceae are common in stool cultures. For surveillance, we usually recommend stool, potentially wound, and maybe even uh, cultures of uh, sites that have a device. Um, So when these are sent down to the laboratory, there's actually a protocol available at the CDC uh, website. The laboratory needs to look specifically for carbapenem-resistant strains of these Enterobacteraceae, which, like I said, will be common on uh, most rectal cultures of patients that you have in your hospital. Okay. Well, Alex, I want to thank you very much for sharing your uh, experience with us. Um, And I want to thank the audience for your attention on this very great problem. Thank you.